Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Everyone, welcome to the 78th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in our world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning to you, Matt. We're on the last uh, recording of the year for 2020. Just a handful of days left in the year. (laughs) We are. So uh, Matt and I are uh, in separate locations today, so we're doing this podcast over Zoom. So uh, apologize for any audio issues uh, for listeners just in advance, um, but we are in different locations, so that's why we're not in the office together. Um, as, as always, we'll just take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track, and these numbers are as of the market close on December 28th, and the data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index is up 1.99% for the month and up 15.73% for the year. The Dow up 1.94% for the month and up 6.72% for the year. The NASDAQ up 3.64% for the month and 42.71% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is up 8.86% for the month and 21.38% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF, X United States, is up 2.74% for the month and up 9.85% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.11%, the two-year Treasury yield sitting at 0.13%, and the 10-year yield is at 0.94%. So the biggest uh, event from the past few days, Matt, uh, obviously has been President Trump signing the stimulus bill dubbed 2.0 a few days ago, uh, also with him expressing interest in raising the payments to Americans from $600 per person to $2,000 per person. And the House just passed um, legislation to do just that. Um, but now that goes to the Senate for a vote, and that's not a shoe-in that that is going to get approved. So we will be watching that very closely um, to see if the, towards the end of the week if, if that gets approved or shot down by Senate Republicans. That would be a big shot in the arm if it was 2000 wouldn't it, Mark? Yeah, it would be. It would be a nice little uh, late Christmas present for everybody, I would think. We will see. So, um, so moving on, like Matt and I said last week, we wanted to dedicate a podcast just to going over kind of the guts and the most important information that we felt like were in this uh, stimulus bill 2.0. Um, and it's important to note that this stimulus bill was attached to a larger piece of legislation called the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021. Uh, which provides funds for the federal government through September of 2021. So, you know, this was, this stimulus bill was just a part of a a much larger uh, piece of legislation. So I know last week uh, we were kind of going through a lot of the things that uh, the government um, 
they portioned off money to, to different nations in different areas of the country that weren't necessarily affected by COVID. So I just wanted to point that out for people that this is part of a larger piece of legislation and it's not just a COVID stimulus bill. So that's why you're probably going to see uh, allocations uh, for the budget for, for things that really aren't related to COVID. Um, and a lot of this data that we're going to talk about is from uh, Jeff Levine from GetSys.com, who does a pretty good job of breaking these, these bills down. So um, got a lot of this information from, from an article that he wrote. Uh, so the first and I think most important thing to get out there is that the latest round of stimulus checks as of right now authorizes a base credit of $600 per eligible individual. And eligible individuals include uh, the taxpayer um, or taxpayers filing the return as well as any children uh, for whom a child tax credit may be claimed. And uh, for that to be claimed, they must be younger than age 17. However, Matt, I was reading some stuff last night that with the new legislation passed by the House, um, that they were just doing $2,000 for anybody. Um, That's what I thought, yeah. Um, so I, it could I, be significant for some of these families. Yeah, it could be significant. And again, that was just something that I heard and that I read a couple times last night, so I'm not sure uh, how true that is, but um, that could be something that, that comes along and gets changed here if the Senate does pass that. Yep, so I was just going to say that, so listeners, you know, pay close attention to what the Senate does here. Mm-hmm. So for every, and again, just, this was just like um, the previous bill, the coronavirus stimulus bill, the CARES Act uh, that was passed earlier in this year, uh, there are phase out limits. So for every $100 of adjusted gross income, a taxpayer exceeds their applicable threshold, $5 of additional recovery rebate will be phased out. So um, those thresholds for single, single filers start at $75,000 and the threshold for joint filers start at $150,000 of adjusted gross income. And these numbers are based off of your 2019 tax return. Um, however, if a taxpayer's 2019 AGI was high enough to phase them out from some or all of the additional recovery rebate, but their actual 2020 AGI is lower and produces a larger uh, recovery rebate, the difference between the two amounts will be added as a credit when the taxpayer files uh, their 2020 tax return. So in case people uh, made a substantial amount of money in 2019, and for whatever reason in 2020, if it had to do with COVID or, or not to do with COVID, but their, their income was lower than the thresholds that I just mentioned, um, people will get a credit uh, when they file their, their 2020 tax return. So um, that obviously is welcome for a lot of people that have had a tough 2020. Uh, also, by contrast, taxpayers whose 2019 income was low enough to receive a payment now, but whose actual 2020 income is high enough that they should have been phased out, will not have to repay such amounts. So there's not going to be any clawback, Matt. On their 2020 tax return, um, you know, if if they did uh, have higher income in 2020, I'm glad they're doing that, Mark, because that could get messy. You know, people trying to claw back money they might have already spent, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I'm happy that they're they're not doing that. I think that just simplifies it for for a lot of people. 
Yeah, and again, for, you know, for those who they could catch up uh, when they get their 2020 returns, you know, depending upon what their income was for the year. So, no, I think they did, they did it smart. I mean, this was, this was written appropriately, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, the next area we're going to cover here is related to the Paycheck Protection Program for small businesses. Um, so for those businesses who have yet to receive a loan under the PPP, uh, the ability to apply for round one of financing will be reopened again. So, uh, but you got to keep in mind too, that those who have already received a loan under the original paycheck protection program, but need additional capital may be able to receive a second loan under what they've dubbed PPP2. Um, however, that has more stringent qualifications than the original uh, Paytech Protection Program. We'll go over that here in a little bit. Good, but there are, uh, there are additional expenses that were authorized for use with the Paycheck Protection Program uh, this time around. Um, and specifically, uh, there's four additional items. So uh, if you remember, Matt, you know, back when the original PPP came around, uh, you know, for these loans to be forgiven by the government, people had to spend it um, on on payroll, right? Yeah, <clears throat> so they had not, to not let anyone go. Yeah, exactly. So they they have loosened um, the requirements for this a little bit. So uh, I guess just right off the bat, um, the PPP funds spent on any of the expenses I'm going to mention here in a second are eligible for forgiveness as long as no more than 40% of the loan is attributed to uh, non-payroll expenses. So it's not a free-for-all on all these expenses. Um, so the majority of it still has to be spent on payroll, but uh, gives the opportunity for people to spend the money uh, other places as well. So uh, the first is covered operations expenditures. So payments for any business software or cloud computing service that facilitates business operations, product or service delivery, the processing payment or tracking of payroll expenses, human resources, sales and billing functions or accounting or tracking of supplies, inventory, records and expenses is covered under the new PPP uh, 2.0 round. Uh, covered property damage costs, expenses related to property damage and vandalism or looting due to public disturbances that occurred during 2020 that was not covered by insurance or other compensation. And I think that's a big one, Matt, because you, know, you had a lot of people who had businesses uh, that were looted or, or you know, property was damaged. And a lot of these people can't afford the insurance because it's so expensive. Um, so you know, this is, I think, something that, that is a, a huge positive for, for some people who um, unfortunately had their property damaged. Yeah. I mean, I traveled earlier in the year and I was in some bigger cities such as Denver and you know, you know, most of the city was great, but there were some areas in the downtown that, you know, really got hit hard um, by some of the, you know, protests and that, that, that turned violent. And, you know, I'm happy that they included that because it's going to be hard for some of these small businesses to bounce back. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people realize how expensive it is to have insurance. You know, if you're, if you're like a, a restaurant uh, in a large city, it, it is very, very expensive. So a lot of a lot, of, a lot of places just don't have the coverage. Yeah. Um, so I'm happy that that got thrown in here. Uh, the third uh, 
covered expense is covered supplier costs. So an expense of a business involving payment to a supplier of essential goods that is made pursuant to a contract order or purchase order that was in effect at any time before the covered period with respect to the applicable covered loan. That's good. Yeah. Helping them, you know, with their cash flow. That's great. And number four is covered worker protection expenditures. So operating or capital expenditures relating to complying with requirements established or guidance issued by the Department of Health and Human Services, the CDC, or the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or any equivalent requirements established or guidance issued by a state or local government during the period beginning on March 1st, 2020, and ending the date on which the national emergency declared by the president under the National Emergencies Act with respect to the coronavirus disease 2019 expires related to the maintenance of standard or sanitation, social distancing, or any other worker or customer safety requirement related to COVID-19. And I think, Matt, obviously the biggest target here is, you know, the, the small business restaurants, the local restaurants in every, in every city across the country absolutely and retail yeah that that had to you know um completely redo you know their their dining rooms or you know their storefronts to to ensure proper social distancing and you know buying the glass to separate people at restaurants and that type of thing you know those are major expenses that you know the, the business owners just had to cover themselves Absolutely. So um, again, I think that they're they're doing this right with this second round of uh, paycheck protection program funds that are that are going to get loaned uh, and available to to a lot of small businesses. So to recap, Mark, up to forty percent of the loan can be used on some of these non payroll areas that you just defined. Correct. Yeah, and sixty percent has to be used on on payroll expenses. Affirmative. Yeah. Um, another piece of this is that there's a simplified forgiveness application for loans up to $150,000. So, um, borrowers of up to 150 grand who are seeking forgiveness for all or a portion of their loan will find it much easier going forward to do so. And specifically the act requires that uh, the small business administration uh, create a new forgiveness certification that is no longer than one page. And while borrow borrowers are still obligated to follow all of the PPP rules, they will not be required to submit any proof of doing so when they submit their forgiveness uh, certification. So the act actually bars lenders from requesting uh, substantiating documents. So, wow, you know, I'm not, not saying that, you know, it's right for people to skirt the rules, but I think it just, you know, uh, saves businesses time in terms of paperwork, uh, because we know how, you know, especially with our industry, how regulated our industry, Matt, is, you know, the proof of, of these things can take significant time and, and expense to do that. So, uh, again, just a, a time saver for small businesses, and it's kind of just, uh, you know, on the honor system here. Well, I think it's also potentially good for borrowers because there was a time when PPP1 came out where banks were somewhat reluctant, Mark, um, to give these loans out. They were afraid that the burden of proof would fall back on them. And right. I know that when stuff was really kind of hitting originally back in 
um, in the spring when PPP was uh, first established, a lot of people couldn't even go to their banks and get these types of loans because right. the banks were concerned that they were going to get stuck holding the bag. Right. And so I think that this is directly um, targeted to encourage banks to do the second round, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then I think also for, for firms that initially took PPP loans, there are a lot of people who returned the money because they were like, Hey, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want to be, you know, penalized for spending money on something that I shouldn't have. Um, and people, you know, they gave, they gave the money back that they had initially received from these loans. So, so it helps, or, helps business. Or they got, uh, I call it PPP shamed. There's yeah. a lot of firms yeah. that took the money and they got shamed because of it. And I just don't think that's right. You know, it yeah. kind of reminds me back in the 07, 08, 09 financial crisis um, when the Federal Reserve was providing these bails out, bailouts for banks, they made all the banks take them whether they needed it or not. And their reasoning was they didn't want anybody to be shamed or targeted as a weak bank and they didn't want to cause a quote unquote run in the bank. This is a little reminiscent of that to where all of a sudden, you know, these banks are sitting here and they have to pick winners and losers, what application they're going to accept or not. And I like that the, the Fed is kind of changing it here and saying, listen, you know, we're not going to request any of those documents. So I'm hoping in this second round, more banks are willing to give these loans out. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, <clears throat> going back to, to payroll for a second, um, additional insurance benefits are going to count as payroll. So going back to that 60% of the loan needs to be spent on payroll, uh, insurance benefits do count as payroll. So expenses related to group life insurance, group disability, vision, and or group dental insurance all count towards payroll expenses. Um, so again, as a reminder, a at least 60%. Say that again? That's a big reclassification. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. Um, so, you know, that, that counts under, under the 60% of the, of the loan to be forgivable of the PPP loan must be attributable to payroll expenses. All that stuff now does count, which is, which is huge because that's a, a big expense for, you know, employers if they're footing the bill for, uh, for, for insurance coverages for their employees. Yep. Um, and then, as we mentioned briefly, uh, borrowers who returned funds initially can can reapply uh, under the coronavirus stimulus bill 2.0. So some of the borrowers um, gave back some or all of the loans due to the uncertainty regarding qualification, calculation, et cetera. Um, but those borrowers are now allowed to reapply for the maximum allowable loan amount. Uh, in addition, lenders can recalculate loan amounts due to changes in regulations that have occurred since a borrower's loan was initially funded. Um, so now moving on to if a business has already taken a PP loan, uh, or excuse me, a PPP loan earlier in the year and spent all the money uh, and they need more, they must meet the following conditions to take a second loan. Um, so businesses that have no more than 300 employees, which is down from 500 employees for the original PPP, with the exception of those businesses classified as providing accommodation and food services. So again, targeted at restaurants. Uh, the business must have experienced a drop in revenue of more than 25% in any quarter in 2020 as compared to the same quarter 
in 2019. Now, and, Mark, let's pause there for a second. I think that's the biggest point in, the, in all this that I saw. Yeah. The fact it, that had to experience a drop in revenue of more than a quarter, 25%, in any quarter here in 2020 compared to 2019. And again, I think this is going to target, you know, uh, travel, leisure, the restaurants, these small business retail that are really struggling. And I'm hoping that this provides this pool of money to those that really, really need it. And I think this hurdle is going to target that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no. And like you, like you said, you know, people and businesses got shamed for taking PPP loans. So I think they specifically put this language in here. So it targets the the companies that have been hit the hardest and that actually really do need the money, which which is a good thing in my opinion. So uh, I'm glad that they they cleared that up, and you know you had to have this decline, a significant decline uh, in, in revenue of over you know a quarter of what you had in in the same quarter in in 2019. So and uh, one more side comment before you continue, sir. In addition, this is eligible for nonprofits as well that I read. Yes. Yes, it is. Um, And then finally, the the second PPP loans are capped at $2 million as opposed to $10 million uh, for first-time PPP loans. Um, So initially, another another big part of this, Matt, has to do with the employee retention credit in 2020. So initially, the CARES Act authorized eligible businesses to receive the employee retention credit in 2020 only. But this Appropriations Act extends eligibility for affected employers for the first half of 2021. So the act also increases the amount of wages per employee that are eligible for the credit uh, from $10,000 total to $10,000 per quarter, as well as redefining the definition of a small employer from 100 employees to 500 employees. And in addition, the credit rate on such wages is increased from 50% to 70%. So qualifying businesses can receive a refundable payroll tax credit of up to $7,000 per quarter per employee. Wow. Um, so that's huge for, for, for small businesses, Matt. Wow. Um, so it's now you know, easier to receive this credit where a company needs to have a reduction in year-over-year quarterly revenues of 20% instead of 50% that was outlined in the original CARES Act. Um, that's so, substantial. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. And I think you know, companies should be rewarded for keeping uh, their people on staff. I think that this is this is something that that makes a whole lot of sense. That if you're you know you're a small business and, and you're sacrificing to to keep your people employed, then you should be rewarded for that in this type of environment. In my opinion. I know a lot of instances behind the scenes, and not just in the state of Ohio, Mark, of people that <clears throat> have maintained their payrolls, and really it was not a financial decision. Let's put it that way, and. Right. Stuff like this is targeted to reward those very good decisions by those business owners. And so this makes me very happy to see this. Um, Unemployment benefits is next, Matt. Um, So there are extended federally subsidized unemployment benefits in this bill as well. Um, So the regular unemployment compensation is extended another 11 weeks. So prior to the passage, 
of this act, the federally subsidized unemployment benefits were scheduled to end this week, but instead they're now going to be extended by an additional 11 weeks covering eligible unemployed individuals through the middle of March of 2021. Um, and also with that, the pandemic unemployment assistance is also extended 11 weeks. So this fund provides unemployment benefits to individuals who are not normally eligible to receive such benefits, uh, like self-employed individuals. Um, this is also extended to provide these benefits uh, through as late as April 5th of 2021. And then finally with this, uh, the regular unemployment compensation increased by $300 for another 11 weeks. So when the CARES Act was originally passed, you know, one of the more contentious elements was the federally funded increase in weekly unemployment benefits for individuals of $600, an extra $600 for four months. Um, that four-month period obviously ended earlier this year, but the passage of this act brings back a reduced version of this for a shorter period of time. So specifically, individuals would receive an additional $300 on top of their regular state-determined unemployment compensation benefit for 11 weeks. So obviously, wow. it's not as large as the $600 bump uh, in weekly benefits provided by the original CARES Act, um, but you know this still uh, would nearly double the check of the average recipient of uh, unemployment compensation. So again, uh, another thing that, that is putting money back into the pockets of, of Americans, which um, you know, and this type of time is a good thing, again, in my opinion. I know, Mark, when they were negotiating this, this was on the chopping block. And so it did make the final bill, which was very interesting, because this was one thing that was definitely a point of contention between both parties. Yeah, yeah, I think this was probably, arguably, the biggest point of contention was to, you know, to keep this going, because, um, you know, obviously, in nature, uh, Republicans are more fiscally conservative and we're fighting for lower payments and Democrats were like, Hey, these people, they need the money. And I'm glad that they found a happy medium <laughs> that they, they could put their differences aside and still provide extra for, uh, relief for the people that needed it. Yeah. I mean, I think there's still those stories out from earlier in the year of individuals on unemployment making more than they would if they were working. And I think that's the major concern is that you want to try to incentivize people to work obviously not to take just the government assistance because they'd make more by not doing so, right? Right. I think right. that was a big point of contention. So cutting the amount in half from six to 300, you know, I could see why that was negotiated in that fashion. Yeah, yeah. And this next one, Matt, was kind of snuck in here, which maybe not a lot of people are going to realize, but I think is huge, is that there's a permanent reduction in the AGI hurdle uh, for medical expense deductions. So medical expenses that exceed 7.5% of adjusted gross income can be deducted on your tax return for all filers. Now, I'm assuming that means you have to itemize to do so. Uh, it said all filers. Hmm. I'd be, I'm going to look into that. I'm going to yeah, dig look, around. And I'll, I'll look into that. That's one that I didn't, I didn't get into. I, I would actually probably assume you're right, Matt, but the, the way I read it, it said all filers. So, okay. Well, you know. I'll, I'll dig around and I'll, I'll ask some, um, some tax professionals that we work with and get their, yeah. uh, their interpretation of this and I'll report back on next week's podcast. Yeah. Thank you. Um, 
The original CARES Act charitable contribution benefits were modified and extended. So when the CARES Act was initially introduced back in March of this year, it included new tax benefits for individuals making charitable contributions. So the first of those benefits was the creation of an above-the-line deduction for cash contributions made to charitable organizations for individuals who do not itemize deductions on their federal tax returns. Um, initially, this deduction was only scheduled to exist for 2020, and it was capped at a maximum of $300 for both single and joint filers. But Section 212 uh, of this act um, extends the benefit to 2021, and in addition to that, um, it removes the marriage penalty associated with the 2020 version by allowing joint filers to claim a deduction of up to $600 instead of just the 300 that was initially in the first CARES Act. So um, a little bit of an increase there for charitable contribution benefits uh, for people Let's pause that there are- real quick, Mark. You know, I think there's a lot of nonprofits that have struggled this year. And I think that this could be a big thing to really help them out and provide, say, an incentive for individuals to donate. So I, I love this piece in the bill. Yeah, I do too. And I, I'm not sure why this wasn't how it was originally done because, you know, virtually for everything, uh, when you're talking about single filers versus joint filers, everything's virtually doubled, right? So, yep. you know, this the standard deduction, uh, you know, and a bunch of other things are doubled, but this was capped at a maximum of $300 rather, you know, uh, than doubling it, even if you're single or, or joint. So I think this was, again, another positive thing here. Good. Uh, number 10 is a big one too, um, for both, uh, you know, this business, businesses and, and for restaurants. Um, so certain meal expenses are now again, hundred percent deductible for 2021 and 2022. So in the effort to encourage business spending at restaurants, the act allows for a full hundred percent deduction for such expenses in 2021 and 2022, but not retroactively for 2020. So the 100% deduction is allowed only to the extent that the expenses incurred for food or beverages provided by a restaurant. So from the language of this statute, Matt, it would certainly appear that expenses related to both in-restaurant dining uh, as well as takeout dining would qualify for this treatment. Um, you know, as long as the food and beverage is provided by the restaurant. And again, this is huge for small businesses that um, want to do things for their clients or for their prospects. And then also it's huge for, you know, uh, restaurants because, you know, more businesses are going to be willing to spend money uh, for, for this type of entertainment. So that's going to provide additional income for them. So I think this is welcomed uh, by a lot of parties here. It's going to be huge, Mark. I mean, prior to when they changed the legislation, the taxation on that, it was a 50% deduction. So now they're going to offer 100% for the next two calendar years of 21 yeah. and 22. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you're going to see a lot more businesses, let's say, hold, you know, events at these, at these restaurants with clients because now they can fully deduct that 100%, not just 50. And it's targeted towards the businesses that are getting hit the hardest with COVID. I love this piece of legislation. Yeah, I do too. I think this is, you know, I, when this went away, I understand 
what their reasoning was it was for it was that you know successful businesses don't need this type of deduction but now in the environment that we're in these local restaurants they they really need as as much money and as much business as they can get right now yep. i think this is this is one of the best ways to do it is just encourage people to spend more at these restaurants yep i mean you provide the tax incentive to do so for the business i love it yeah uh, the next thing in this bill that I thought was pertinent was um, the exclusion for employer payments of student loans is extended through 2025. So uh, again, when the first CARES Act came out earlier this year, for 2020 only, the ability for employer to provide up to $5,250 of annual tax-free education assistance used to pay the principal or interest on an employee's qualified student debt is extended through 2025. So such payments uh, may be made directly to a lender or they can just be made to the employee who can then use the payments to pay down their own student debt. So this is huge to extend through you know, 2025 uh, for people or for employers to help their employees out by paying down some of their, some of their student loans. Um, again, I think this is, another great benefit um, for employers to offer to their employees and now uh, over the next several years as well. Love that. And then the final thing that I kind of wanted to discuss today is the carry forward relief for flex spending account funds that remain unused at the end of the year. So usually any amounts remaining in a uh, individual's flex spending account at the end of the year are generally forfeited. So the general rule is, Matt, that if you have one of these accounts that's offered as a benefit by your employer, it's, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it, right? Um, but in Section 214 of this Act, employers uh, are allowed to let employees roll forward any unused benefits in 2020 to 2021. And then it further allows any remaining balances at the end of 2021 to be rolled into 2022. Wow. Um, however, this seems like, again, from the way that I read it, is that it, it is a employer by employer decision and employers will not be required to grant this to employees. So if you do have this benefit through your employer, I would double check with them uh, and double check on HR with this to see if this is a benefit that your employer is going to be offering because it seemed to me that employers are not required to do so. Um, however, if it, if it does, it's a huge benefit. Um, so if you don't use anything in those flex spending accounts, not only can 2020 be rolled into 2021, but then 21 can be rolled into 2022. So a couple of years of carry forward here uh, that would be useful for, for people. That's substantial. I love that. Um, so those were the kind of the main things that I wanted to talk about. I guess my final thoughts on this, Matt, is I think that there was a little more, um, I don't want to say effort, but there was a little more thought put into this bill, I think. And not saying, I mean, so let's think back to March. Everyone was in a panic, right? So, you know, everyone in the government wanted to get something out to people as soon as possible. And obviously, you know, if they had more time, I think that a lot of this language would have been in there, but because they were on a, a time crunch and there were so many people hurting, uh, they needed to put something out there. But 
I think this one has a lot more thought put into it and a lot of it makes more sense um, to me, in my opinion. It's a um, lot more targeted to those who are in need. Yes, yes, agreed, agreed. Because I think at first it was, you know, a lot of these benefits were, you know, could be accessed by anyone, even if their business wasn't hurting or if individually they weren't hurting. But now it's, it's definitely more specifically targeted towards the people that need it the most, right? Yep, exactly. So, um, again, there's going to be more stuff over the next couple of weeks that I'm sure comes out of this, but I think the next thing that everyone's going to be watching is to see if the Senate votes to increase the stimulus payment per person from $600 to $2,000. So we will keep an eye on that and obviously discuss that um, maybe next week or the week after, uh, to see where we stand there. Yeah. And just to also give a preview to listeners, Mark, I'm going to have on my end, at least a lot of content, uh, for, uh, the first podcast in 2021. So listeners giving you a heads up, probably be a little bit longer podcast than normal as we kind of catch up from a lot of this raw data that I've been, I've been sifting through that I'd like to share. Yeah, now I apologize for the long rant today, but just wanted to get the, the main meat of the, the stimulus bill out to people to uh, kind of let everyone know what's going to be coming. And um, <clears throat> I think it's important to you know pick out the things that we feel are most pertinent to everybody. So apologize for the long monologue uh, this morning, but I uh, just wanted to get that out there. So yeah, next week, as Matt said, we'll get back to our normal schedule of events on, on the podcast. But did, did we have any... Any questions or anything this week, Matt? We did, Mark. We had one question from Timothy. His question was in regards to selecting saving into a traditional IRA versus a Roth IRA. And does it make sense to take the tax benefit now or later? And would you like to start? And I'll add any verbiage to that. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And I... <laughs> Like a lot of answers that we give to people, and I, and I hate this about our industry, is there's no one-size-fits-all one answer to this, Tim. Um, it really depends on your tax rate throughout your career. So, you know, if you're, if you're in a, a low tax bracket, um, then, you know, generally it makes sense to pay the tax now and let that money grow, you know, tax-free for the rest of your life if you put it into a Roth. But, you know, if you're in a higher tax bracket now, you know, putting that money in pre-tax allows that larger sum of money to grow larger over the long term. So it really depends. You would have to pinpoint what your tax rate would be in your working years and then what your tax rate would be in retirement, which obviously we don't live in a a perfect world to do that. So nothing's going to be 100% accurate. Um, so to directly answer your question, Tim, it really, it really depends on what your tax rate is. Uh, throughout your working years to, to make that calculation. And I know that there are a bunch of calculators out there online where you can put in, um, you know, estimated tax rates and to see what makes the most sense um, doing a Roth or a traditional IRA. So there are those tools out there, but again, nothing is going to be perfect and it won't get you, you know, the absolute uh, number that you're looking for, I think. I think you you said it perfectly. And the only thing I want to emphasize is you have to estimate what that taxation rate's going to be in retirement. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people out there trying to make the case mark that 
Historically speaking, putting it into context, we have below average tax rates currently. And some people are saying, well, with deficit spending at some point, those might normalize, i.e. tax rates could go up. And then in essence, in retirement, you could be possibly at a higher tax rate. That's a possibility. And so I think that that's going to be the hardest thing is judging that retirement tax rate. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then especially because the Tax Cuts and, and Jobs Act uh, sunsets in 2025. So that, it does. that wasn't a permanent thing anyways. Um, and that's going to be a substantial campaigning topic in 2024. You better believe it. Yeah. And I think this is another thing, Matt, where, I don't know, in my opinion, I think some people get too into the weeds on this, where I think like this is one of those topics where good is enough, or at least just personally, I feel better about having access to tax-free funds in retirement, so you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> um, so I don't know. That's just one of the, the things that I like about Roths is that you know once that money is taxed, that money can grow tax-free for the rest of your life, and you don't have to worry about paying taxes on that ever again. And just from a mental standpoint, I like that. Um, that's just a, a personal thing, though. Um, but obviously, you can get into the weeds and do this calculation if you want, but. That's just my opinion on it. Well, Timothy, we appreciate the question. And obviously, it was more than a one-sentence answer. So that's when you know, Mark, it's a good question. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. Uh, has a track record of uh, providing us some good questions. So, sir, please keep those coming. And we would encourage others to submit questions because obviously, if you're thinking of it, most likely another listener is as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anything else before we uh, wrap up for the week and for the year for 2020? The uh, only comment I want to make, this is an observation in the market. Um, we told listeners that uh, we felt we were going to see some window dressing going into the end of the year, and I am seeing that um, over the last several trading days. And you just want to take just 30 seconds and remind listeners from the prior podcast what that means, Mark? Yeah, it's, um, you know, fund managers want to show that they're holding some of the, the best performers throughout the year, right? So, you know, if, uh, you know, a fund manager has missed out on holding Amazon, for example, and just picking an arbitrary stock that has done well this year and it's outperformed the general market, they want to show their investors that they own Amazon, right? So uh, the past couple of days, you've seen a, a nice jump up uh, in Amazon and Apple and Microsoft and all these mega cap tech companies because they're the ones that have done really well this year and outperformed the general market. So you're going to see people buying those names to show their investors at year end that, that they do in fact own these companies. Exactly. And I'm, uh, I'm seeing that just an observation. I'm seeing that, but um, I definitely have built up um, a lot of, um, I think, uh, content that the listeners are going to love next week. So just be prepared for a little bit of a longer podcast listeners. Okay. All right. Well, we will leave it there for 2020. Uh, thanks everybody for tuning in to the 78th episode of the independent advisors podcast. And we will be back with you next week on our normal schedule. Hope everyone has a safe, happy and healthy uh, new years. And we'll be back next week. See you in 2021. Thank you for listening to the independent advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. 
Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.